0: Let me pray for us. Lord, today is an important day. And we pray that you would have your way among us today. May we have eyes to see, ears to hear the truth that you have for us. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we scrapped our original plan for the message for this weekend to tackle something that needs to be addressed. And I want to lead into that by talking with you for a few moments about the church that loves and embraces the gospel of Jesus Christ. What I hear people calling these days the gospel-driven church. By the way, I'm a fan of the gospel-driven church. I don't have it all figured out yet and how it all fleshes out. But keeping Jesus and his cross central to the life of our church. My reason for addressing this is going to become more apparent to you in just a few minutes. Here's a question that I've been pondering and our leadership team has been thinking about a lot these days. In a gospel-driven church, what are the prevailing attitudes and mindsets that the membership and the leadership have in a church that wants to keep the gospel central? And I'll admit that I don't have a full grasp of the answer yet to that question, but A few things are becoming quite clear to me, and I scribbled some of them down the other day, and I want to share them with you, and I would say this. First off, in a a church that wants to keep the gospel central, Jesus Christ is supreme. say, well, that goes without saying. No, it doesn't. We need to say it. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is to be esteemed and embraced and treasured above all else. He's to be our supreme treasure in all the world. He's worth it. He's worthy of it. Our uh, new school of ministry, SOMA, has begun recently. And in a couple weeks, I'm going to be teaching a SOMA course titled Jesus-Focused Ministry. And in that course, I intend to demonstrate that everything is ultimately all about Jesus Christ. The Bible, it's all about Jesus Christ, pointing to him. The gospel is all about Jesus. Salvation is all about Jesus. God's grand plan of the ages. It's all about Jesus. It finds its consummation and culmination in him, Jesus Christ. New Testament preaching was all about Jesus. The kingdom is all about Jesus. The church is all about Jesus. Evangelism and discipleship and spiritual ministry is all about Jesus. And heaven is going to be all about Jesus. Making much of Jesus forever. So I believe that all that is, is ultimately about Jesus Christ. And as a result, our lives as followers of Jesus are to be all about loving and serving and honoring and reflecting and glorifying Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That's why we sing about him every week, every week. Jesus. It's a sweet name, isn't it? Jesus. Our gatherings on weekends here and when we come together in small groups and in ministry teams are most what they should be when they're centered in Jesus Christ. In a gospel-driven church, the only celebrity is Jesus. We're not trying to make a celebrity out of any human. The only person we put on a pedestal is Jesus. The only person we take cell phone calls in a service is from Jesus. (laughs) It's all about Jesus. And if he's calling, answer the phone. (laughs) Was that Jesus, by the way? (laughs) We're listening. We're listening. Gifted people in the church, and we have lots of gifted people in this church, understand and know that their gifts come from Jesus, and they are to use their gifts and talents to magnify and glorify Jesus and not really to draw attention to themselves. Paul wrote, Jesus is before all things, in him all things hold together. He's the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything Jesus might be preeminent. And so I have a commitment commitment in a gospel-driven church like this one that we keep Jesus front and center and that he is supreme among us. It's all about Jesus. The second mindset or attitude that I believe is prevailing in a a gospel-driven church is, is the cross. Jesus is supreme and the cross is central. That's why we have a cross, a big cross on the front of our building that you can see from a mile up. McCutcheon Road, that's why we have a cross in this worship auditorium, front and center, so that we're reminded that the cross is to be central in our gatherings and our meetings and our teachings and our conversations. There's a movement afoot in evangelicalism these days that wants to talk a lot about Jesus, but not as much about his cross. They want to talk about Jesus as our supreme example, and certainly he is our example for living and loving and doing good in the world. But, you know, when you read the New Testament, the apostles' message had a unique focus on Jesus as Savior, Redeemer, the Lamb of God, his cross. First Corinthians 2.2, Paul wrote, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified, his cross. He wrote in Galatians 6.14, Far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Keeping the cross central. Of course, 1 Corinthians 1.18 says, The word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. So it's, it's only the message of the cross that can save sinners from the holy wrath of a righteous God against our sin. It's only by embracing the message of the cross. That's why the cross is to be kept central. Paul wrote, In him, in Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And so we talk a lot about and sing about the blood of Jesus Christ, don't we? As Peter said, it is precious to us because it was the purchase price of our redemption, the shed blood of Jesus, the Son of God. No other message is to supplant or take the central place of the message of the gospel. And all other legitimate messages emanate from and draw their power from that message. That Jesus came, lived a perfect life, died on an old rugged cross, and was raised three days later for our justification. That's the message that Paul says is of first importance, and only one thing can be of first importance, and only the gospel is. That's the message that Christians should be proclaiming to non-believers, amen, to unsaved people. It's the message that Christians should be proclaiming to each other and to themselves. I try to preach the gospel to myself every day. Steve, you're a sinner. Jesus Christ came and bled and suffered and died on the cross for your sins and rose from the grave for your justification. Reminding myself of that every day keeps me humble, keeps me broken before him, keeps me mindful of my own weakness, keeps me grateful that I've been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb so many benefits of preaching the gospel to myself every day. So a church that's striving to be gospel driven works hard to keep the message of the cross central in its gatherings and in its meetings and conversations. That's one reason why we're encouraging our small groups beginning this fall to start participating in the Lord's table communion together in your small group with your friends, with your partners there in your group, keeping the cross central. It's also why we'll be observing it here on weekends more often than, than we have in the past, to keep the cross central, keep it in front of us. So in a gospel-driven church, Jesus is supreme and the cross is central, and then sin is taken seriously. In a gospel-driven church, sin has to be taken seriously. Why? Because sin is what we've been saved From through the cross. This is what the angel said to Mary, right? Call his name Jesus, meaning Jehovah saves, for he shall save his people from their sins. Sin is what we've been saved from. That's why in a gospel-driven church, we have to take sin seriously. When the first church came into being about 1980 years ago, the Lord sent a very clear message right at the outset but defined his view of deliberate sin in the lives of church members. Do you remember this? You can read about it in Acts chapter 5. There was a couple in the church, a married couple. Their names were Ananias and Sapphira. And they apparently, at a church gathering of some sort, had made a show of the fact that they had some property and they were going to sell it and take all the proceeds from that sale and give it to the church to distribute to those who were in need. But when the time came and the sale was completed, they reneged on that vow and they only brought a portion of the proceeds. Remember what happened? They got exposed and God killed them. I mean, talk about church discipline. All through the New Testament, we see God calling his people to hate sin and love righteousness and live holy lives because of Jesus and because of the cross. Like in Philippians 1.27, where it says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. For Second Corinthians 7.1, where Paul wrote, Since we have these promises, friends, these gospel promises, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Or the great passage in Colossians 3, listen. If you then have been raised with Christ, seek those things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds, your affections on things above, not on things on the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ who is your life appears, you also will appear with him in glory Therefore, put to death, kill, it says, what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. For on account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them in the old life in the B.C. days, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. And this is not just moralism. This is not just behaviorism. This is not just do better, try harder. This is a call to gospel-shaped conduct, to live our lives in a manner that's worthy of the gospel of Christ that we say we believe and embrace. To live out of those promises, those gospel promises. And to live in alignment with our new position. Our high and lofty position in Christ. Seated with him in heavenly places. In a gospel driven church, we must take sin seriously. Sin in our own lives. Sin in each other's lives. Sin in our leader's lives. Because of the gospel... We must let the word of God shape our consciences so that we're alerted to potential dangers. We must learn to be sensitive to sin, sensitive to sin, and see how it caused God to crush his own son on our behalf. We must learn to confess our sins and to confront each other with humility and, and in love. We must learn how to confess our sins appropriately to each other. As it says in James 5, 16, confess your sins one to another and pray for one another that you may be healed. We must learn how to truly repent with godly sorrow for God's glory and for our good. The gospel-driven church takes sin seriously. It has to. It's one reason we offer encounter weekends every So often here at New Life, where you go away for a weekend with a small group of people and those with life-dominating sins and addictions are guided through a process of getting freed up through the power of the gospel. So Jesus is supreme and the cross is central and sin is taken seriously. And then, of course, in a truly gospel-driven church, forgiveness reigns. Grace-filled forgiveness is offered freely to all who are genuinely contrite and repentant. I mean, forgiveness of sin is at the heart of the gospel, right? It's at the heart of the gospel. That's why it's written in Ephesians 4.32, Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. We've been forgiven, so we extend forgiveness to others. More detail about this process and what is to happen is given in Galatians chapter 6 and verse 1. Perhaps you're familiar with this passage. It says this, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, or it's another word for sin, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he's nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work. And then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. Comparing yourself with somebody else. For each one must carry his own load. Here in this passage, Paul tells us what should happen in a gospel-driven church community when a fellow church member involved in a secret sin gets exposed tells us what should happen. Unfortunately, this is not what always does actually happen in church. What should happen is spelled out very clearly. A team of spiritual people should get involved in that person's life and begin a work of restoration, it says. Restore him. Restoration, not condemnation, not obliteration, but restoration. This presupposes that that sinful member has fully confessed and repented of their sin. Restoration can't really happen until repentance has occurred. But once the offender has laid it all out on the table and has seen it for what it is and confessed it and turned away from it, then restoration can and should happen. It's interesting. It says, you who are spiritual should restore him gently. The word restore in the original is a very interesting word. It was used to speak of mending a net like a fishing net that had a tear in it. To restore that net meant to mend it. It was also used of a, a limb that got fractured or broken to reset the limb, to restore it. And so the idea of restoration is to bring healing and repair and alignment to a person's heart and to their relationships that got fractured by sin. Now, it says that this process is so delicate and so fraught with its own set of temptations that it, it's only to be undertaken by spiritual people who are humble and gentle, gentle enough to carefully handle raw emotions and humble enough to know that if it weren't for the grace of God, it could be them. Paul wrote, watch yourself or you also may be tempted in this process, tempted to do what? What? Tempted to be harsh and unloving and condemning with the sinning brother or sister. Tempted to feel superior and think that you're better than them and you would never do anything like that. Tempted to think that it could never happen to you. Watch yourself. Satan is lurking at the door, he said. So when someone in the body is caught in a sin and has acknowledged and repented fully. We are called not to shoot them, not to gossip about them, not to kick them out the door, not to be secretly proud that we would never do such a thing, but to set in motion a process of restoration led by spiritual people who are keenly aware of their own frailty. Basically, what I get from this is that God will tell those spiritual people what to do. God himself will guide them step by step throughout the process, which will probably look different for different people in different settings. And God will do this because he loves his own glory and he loves the church and he loves his people.